This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And welcome in on this beautiful summer Sunday morning. Happy 4th of July weekend when we celebrate the birth of our nation. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie of Your Radio Doctor here on WPHT 1210 AM. And today, our outstanding guests include dermatologist Dr. Lynn Klein from Lankanal Hospital and ophthalmologist Dr. Christopher Rapuano from Will's Eye Hospital. We'll be discussing skin and eye lesions due to COVID-19 and, right in time for summer, how you can protect against sun damage. Then, Your Real Champion is a beautiful 4th of July story about Marine Corps Sergeant Jack Johnson, who celebrates his love of America every single day. So let's begin. Dr. Lynn Klein is a professor and chief of the Division of Dermatology at Lankanal Medical Center of Mainline Health. Welcome, Lynn. So great to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Lynn, we know that there are certain lesions related to COVID, maybe not from the disease itself, but from wearing the personal protective equipment, masks, gowns, and gloves. And we had a nice chat the other day, and we were talking that the lesions can be from different reasons, maybe allergic reactions or the contact of skin with the material. So where would you start? I guess the masks? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, they're made of different materials, but mostly um, crushed up plastic, which is polypropylene material. And anyone can be allergic or have an irritation to that material. In addition, the area around the nose is made up of a metal, and it's pinching against the nose, causing irritation and even a contact dermatitis to the ingredient in metal. 
In addition, most of us are wearing it for long, long hours, and it presses right into the skin, similar to a bra strap rubbing on your shoulder or rubber band around the wrist, causing an indentation once you take it off late at night. And now that it's warm and humid, we're seeing things like acne type of rashes underneath the mask. It's a great setup due to the humidity and wearing it for long times of the day. And then there's also breakdown in the skin, uh, which will heal, but is disalarming to people once they take the mask off. In addition, uh, people are wearing face shields around the uh, forehead, and that can cause a great deal of sweating and irritation. But we definitely need a great seal. So I recommend not putting anything on right before you put that face shield on. Rather, do everything in the evening so that the skin will repair overnight. It makes perfect sense because, as you say, uh, when COVID first began, it was cold. So the conditions have changed so much and we're much more likely to be um, hot and sweaty and we're breathing that warm air into the mask and that's bouncing back and, and all of these things combined make people uncomfortable. And I guess the other point is at first we were addressing these skin irritations with healthcare workers, but we're encouraging everyone to wear masks now. So it's becoming an issue across the board for everyone. Yes. Um, I do see in the public, many people wearing N95s in addition to uh, fabric masks, so any of the ingredients, if they're synthetic material, anybody can get an irritation. And I do hear the public complaining about difficulties under even their face mask, but I'd rather them wear it. And when this is all over, we can always take care of it. So I, I know you mentioned that if people break out under their, um, their facial masks, um, and especially if they have acne to begin with, you recommend uh, a certain type of face wash or preparation. What would you ask your patients yes. to do? I always recommend a gentle cleanser and look for things in the cleanser and a moisturizer that have the word non-comedogenic, which means that they won't break out from it. And of course, a board-certified dermatologist can prescribe prescriptions for the acne. And I, I like what you said as well. When your face, uh, you're washing your face before bed or when you get up in the morning, while it's still damp, that's when you should add moisturizer to your face. Blot your face dry Correct. and then add the moisturizer. I guess that's trapping the moisture, huh? Yes, that's going to help repair the skin. And although it sounds counterintuitive to put on a moisturizer with all this heat and humidity and wearing a mask, it actually repairs the skin so that you can respond better to any of the over-the-counter or prescription medications. Well, and I know, t uh, I know myself, I have, very, I have hands that perspire all the time. Summer, winter, um, especially when I'm on the move and, and on my adrenaline running. So my hands are often sweaty and I'm, in the wintertime, like most people, they get very chapped and cracked open. And then add to that all the hand washing and people using sanitizers. And again, not just healthcare workers, although we're advised to use hand sanitizer going into a hospital room and leaving the hospital room. So if you see 15 or 20 people in a day, 
that's 40 times in addition to all the other times we hand wash. And um, I really like your advice about that, what we should do in the winter time, and then we can talk about what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, no matter what, we have to wash our hands, whether it's with soap and water or a hand sanitizer, so we're going to have to deal with it. Of course, again, repairing that skin at night with smothering it with moisturizers that either contain ceramides or petrolatum, which is Vaseline, is the easiest way to get that skin in good shape to wash your hands all day long. Uh, We're not going to stop doing that. And that includes in between the fingers and under the fingernails. Sure. And I think people forget that. And I I guess I'd also include people that have, um, um, I'm not up to date here, artificial nails that the longer your nails, the easier it is to trap bacteria. And especially now when we're touching surfaces and being warned to be especially careful um, to wash under your nails as well. Um, And as you always say, Lynn, use soap and water to avoid secondary infections. I guess that's what I was driving toward, that if you do have cracks in your skin, you're not going to get COVID through your skin into your body, but you don't want to get staph or strep infections in those breaks in your skin on your hands, right? Yes, and that includes year-round, not just during this time of the year or mm-hmm. during this virus. And, uh, and one of the things that was popping up in the news, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, but just I was going to make mention of blue toes, that that is, there's a condition called Raynaud's that some of our listeners may be familiar with. The cold causes spasm of arteries and your fingers turn white. It's simply a color change. But the blue toes that were uh, the popping up in uh, Internet stories and on the news Fingers and toes with papules or little nodules on the fingers and toes might be the only sign someone has that they have COVID. Have you seen much of that in your practice? Yes, many, many times. Um, It's usually due to late onset COVID, and it may be the only sign at all that we see. So I guess it's helpful that if that is the only sign, at least we know that person should be tested, especially if they have no other symptoms, or it could identify those who have already had COVID and help to filter uh, who's at risk and who is past the risk. Well, let's take a little break, and I thank you for being here, Lynn. After the break, we'll come back and talk about how sun can damage our skin. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And we're back with our guest, Dr. Lynn Klein from Lankanel Medical Center. Lynn, tell us, it's such a big topic. We could spend an entire show on how sun can damage our skin. And and I know you have great advice for our listeners. I sure do. Um, Now that uh, the warmer weather is here and we're all seeking nature as a comfort during this time, uh, I'm seeing a lot of patients come into the office with skin cancers. And, of Mm. course, we want to intervene and do some protection to prevent the most common cancer in the world, which is skin cancer. Sure. And and I think it's really interesting when you use the perfect words to help people identify lesions that need attention. Um, We know that basal cell, most people have heard of basal cell cancer and, and squamous cell 
are not often, or most of the time, if I'm right, are not as deadly as melanoma. Let's talk about those lesions for a brief time, and then we'll talk all about melanoma. Sounds great. So uh, basal cell and squamous cell, as you mentioned, are the most common cancers and have a very good prognosis if caught early. Uh, both of them can occur in all skin colors. Um, any of us are at risk, especially if we've had a lot of sunburns or blistering sunburns in our youth or even have gone to an artificial tanning salon. And I, and I scratch my head when I think about the tanning beds because for how many years, I guess back into the... 80s, 70s, when finally the Surgeon General put a warning on the size of cigarette boxes or cigarette packages that they can cause cancer. And finally, we were chatting before that the Surgeon General, you mentioned, uh, has made the official announcement that sun is a cancer-causing source of problems for people. It's official. Correct. We're really happy he did that back in 2014. Mm Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that what our listeners need to realize is even sun damage is possible in people of all colors. Even people who have darker skin think they're protected. Not so. Even patients with darker skin um, are more likely to get skin cancer lesions in acro areas, their hands, their feet, under their nails. Tell us about that. Yes. um, Sadly, they don't think about skin cancer affecting them. And when they do come in, the majority are a little bit more advanced because they're in places that they don't look for, like under their uh, feet, on the soles, under their nails, and even on their hands. But no matter the skin color, we're all susceptible to getting skin cancer and especially melanoma, which is one Mm -hmm. of the fastest rising cancers in the United States. And what's interesting about that is Most of the time, I would guess it's related to sun exposure, although you said that there's a small percentage that are, it's a genetically inherited um, risk factor. But we know tanning beds can increase your risk of melanoma by as much as 75%. Am I right about that? Correct. Even just one single visit. And you think of the little teenagers who want to get that perfect tan before they go to the prom or people think if they go to a tanning salon, I mean, I've heard patients say this, that then their skin is primed or or more protective when they go into the real sun, not so. They're just quadrupling, exponentially expanding their risk for skin cancers. And I know they used to use ultraviolet light to dry people's fingernails when they have a manicure, but now that's safer. It's LED light. And uh, you mentioned children with burns, especially if they're blistered. People that are light with red hair, blonde hair, light eye color. And when we talk about melanomas, I love to hear the A, B, C, D, E mnemonic that helps people run to the dermatologist rather than walk if they have a mole that changes. If you have a mole that's itchy or painful or bleeding, as Dr. Klein says, run, don't walk to the dermatologist. But maybe we could go through the A, B, C, D, E. I'd be more than happy to. We've used it for over two decades, and it's been an excellent campaign that people tend to remember. The A stands for asymmetry. It's not circular and perfect. The B stands for border, that it's a jagged scallop border. Color is very important. It can be blue-brown, red-brown, 
black, brown, or even white, and clear, which is an amelanotic melanoma, very hard to diagnose. And then we talk about diameter. We generally think of larger than a pencil size, over six millimeters, but it easily can have the other ABC uh, indications and be smaller than six millimeters. And E is for evolving, changing over time. So a changing mole, very, very important. And a brand new mole that changes in size, color, shape, peen, or bleeding, very important to bring it to someone's attention, either your primary care or but especially a dermatologist. And we also talk about the ugly duckling sign. Mm-hmm. That just stands out different than any other. Pay attention to those. So if somebody's had moles all their lives and then one looks even remotely different than the others, that's what you're calling the ugly duckling. Make sure that gets checked. I thought it was interesting Correct. you told me the other day, Lynn, that uh, some of the um, spikes in risk uh, in your timeline are when you have hormonal changes, say in women, with, well, men or women, puberty, um, maybe with pregnancy and at menopause you see hormone fluctuations that, that might bump the risk for melanomas to appear. Yes, um, especially pregnancy, uh, but we don't tell women to not get pregnant. We just ask them to be monitored even closer. If they've had a history of melanoma, we'll monitor them on a closer basis. And, and I think one of the things that stands out in my mind, even from medical school, where that melanomas can present and they're so insidious that's why they can get ahead of people but sometimes it appears as a line under your fingernail like a brown line or a black line maybe yes it's not a circular mole it starts at the bed of the nail and it starts growing outward in a linear streak very hard to tell but a dermatologist can look we have a handheld microscope called a dermatoscope And we can see the variation in the pigment uh, right away with our eyes or with this dermatoscope. Well, and I know what's really especially um, nasty with melanoma is a small percent, well, not so small, 2 to 10 percent, I think is what I saw in the literature, can have no brown or black obvious color change at all. They can just be pink. And if they don't have those. That's what I'm talking about, the amelanotic. Yes. That's just cruel to do to people. Um, That I don't expect patients to pick up. No, exactly. And uh, so that's why you were saying earlier, if you have a pink or reddish non-healing lesion, don't think it's just dry skin. Have your dermatologist check it. And the other thing I was reading about recently was that there are apps for smartphones and computer programs that if you have a mole, you can put your hand up or your arm up to the computer screen and the artificial intelligence will tell you if you're in good or bad shape. No, that hasn't been validated or regulated. Don't trust that. See your doctor. So, so Lynn, yeah, there's so, there's so much good advice that's common sense. And how do you advise your patients to be extra careful with sunscreen and all those good things? It's not just all about sunscreen because many people think they're protected putting on sunscreen. We like them to put it on about 15, 20 minutes before they actually go outdoors and put it on generously. You want to use at least a quarter size for your face, 
a shot glass full for your body and at least over 30. And you want to seek out shade as much as possible or sun protective clothing and reapply that sunscreen every two hours or immediately after swimming or sweating. And I'd like that you always remind patients to make sure that the sunscreen you purchase covers UVA and UVB rays. I would think all of them do now. They didn't always, but to make sure UVA and UVB rays are protected and make sure, friends, that if you have lotion or sunscreen from a year or two that it's not expired it's not going to help you if if it's out of date and to see your dermatologist on a yearly visit that's so important people die from melanoma people can die from squamous cell cancer and basal cell and how about if a, if a person has a family history of melanoma any special advice for them uh yes they should be definitely screened once a year uh, a first degree relative does and put you at risk and it used to be thought that uh, family uh, pedigrees that would have multiple cancers, back some 20 years ago, they thought melanoma was related to breast, colon. That's not so. Is the risk for melanoma related to any other cancers in particular? Uh, breast cancer. All right. So that's something people should keep in mind. And please, for our listeners, if you have little babies, keep them covered in the sun. Sometimes I see people running and they have a stroller and the baby's in there and the baby's whole face and arms exposed to the sun. They're not covered. And we know that we can use sunscreen for little babies beginning at six months. Am I right, Lynn? That is right. You said it all. Oh, but better to keep them completely covered. The little angels and their skin is so fragile. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. We learned a lot, and um, especially since it's 4th of July, and as you say, we've all been cooped up for a while, and it feels good to go outside and just say, okay, I've been locked up for four months. I deserve to just go out and sit in the sun, but don't throw your good skin away and uh, open your wrist for cancer, because none of us want that. Well, Lynn, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Stay well, and I'll have to have you back sometime to cover other really important things in dermatology. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. Take care. Thank you. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Joining me now, Dr. Christopher Rapuano. Professor and Chief of Cornea Service at Will's Eye Hospital. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Marianne. Great to be here. Oh, it's wonderful. So I thought it'd be helpful for people to hear about um, COVID and its effect on our eyes. And then even more important is sun damage to our eyes, because I guess as we discussed the other day, when COVID signs and symptoms first began to unfold, and it's still evolving, as an ophthalmologist, you wanted people to keep their fingers away from their eyes and said, maybe contacts aren't good for this time period, uh, and switch to your glasses. What do you think about that? Well, I think that that was, a, that was great advice back then. We wanted people to keep their fingers away from their faces in general, and especially their eyes. You know, we... We knew slash thought that you know, COVID was trans transmitted through kind of mucous membranes and things like that. And 
the eyes and mucous membrane. So if you had some on your fingers, you didn't wash your hand properly, and then you put it in your eye, you know, it would potentially be a way to get infected. Um, Now, I haven't heard of any cases that have been transmitted that way, so we're a little less concerned about contact lenses these days. But still, I think it's a a very good idea to always wash your hands before using your contacts. And lastly, when we... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of COVID, we were also very concerned that it was really hard to get a doctor's appointment. And if someone did get a problem in their eye, COVID-related or just contact lens-related, like a contact lens-related ulcer, it'd be hard to get that managed um, medically, uh, you know, when most doctor's offices and many hospitals were, were closed to kind of regular patients. So it was, there were really two reasons we were really discouraging contact lens use. So now neither one is quite as critical, but still good contact lens hygiene is critically important for safe contact lens wear. Sure. And I I remember sharing with you a story of a young patient I had who said, oh, well, contacts last for 14 days. So she put them in her eyes and kept them there for 14 days, day and night, instead of taking them out of bedtime, which, as you say, can cause ulcers of the cornea. So for our listeners, the cornea, if you look at someone from the side, you can see a clear covering like a globe over their eye. It's transparent and it has two jobs. The cornea protects the iris and the pupil by blocking dust and bacteria and general trauma, I guess. And it's also the window that lets light enter the eye. And it's probably responsible for about 75% of working with the lens to focus. Would you say, Chris, did I explain that well? Yeah, that's perfect. Yes. About two-thirds to three-quarters of the light of focusing power of the eyeball is in the cornea. Mm -hmm. So it's really just like having that layer of protection. So... I didn't know until recently um, about that LASIK actually changes the shape of the cornea. Tell us about that, laser, LASIK for um, yeah. adjusting so your laser, vision. Yeah, laser, laser, eye, laser vision correction um, are, are ways that a, a laser is used to reshape the cornea. So since the cornea is responsible for this 75, 66, 75% of the refraction, if you change that a little bit, you can change people's nearsightedness or farsightedness. Um, so that's what laser vision correction does, just by reshaping the cornea. There are two main forms of it. One is called LASIK. That's where either a blade or a, a different laser is used to make a, flat, a thin flap of the cornea that's moved to the side. A different laser is used to reshape the body of the cornea, and then the flap is put on top as a covering. And then there's also something called PRK, where instead of creating a flap, you just laser the top of the cornea to reshape it. The pros and cons to each of those, but both of them can do a very, very good job to reduce people's dependence on glasses and contacts. It's really an incredible, uh, I guess, invention isn't the, the the word to use, but and I know not everybody's a candidate. Some people have a cornea that's maybe too thin or too thick, and and I know you mentioned that age can maybe be a factor in deciding whether it's a good idea for a particular patient. Exactly. So you do have to have kind of a complete eye exam to make sure you're a good candidate. But corneas that are too thin may not be good candidates. Corneas that are not, that are, so corneas that are a little irregular um, may not be good candidates. Um, people who are over around age 35, 40, 45, they can get PRK or LASIK, but then usually they get good distance vision and they then still need reading glasses for things up close. If they understand that, that's fine. But if people say, oh, I want no glasses for anything, after age around 40, um, we don't have any good answer for that yet. 
Right. And if people do have this procedure, either LASIK or PRK, do you do both eyes at once or do you say, let's do one at a time in case of infection or some other issue? Well, I was involved in the FDA trials for PRK in the early 90s. In the FDA trials, we had to do one eye at a time and we had to wait six months between the two eyes which was a real problem for a lot of patients because it was this big imbalance in the two eyes. When it was FDA oh. approved, we could do one eye at a time or both eyes at once, and we've, we've pretty much all transitioned to do both eyes the same day. Although I'll mm-hmm. offer my patients one eye at a time. Most want to get both done the same day, um, and it's such a good and safe procedure that it's pretty unusual to have a complication in both eyes. And I, and I should add, while we're talking about safety, you mentioned earlier when everything was closed, all elective cases, et cetera, it may have been hard to see a doctor if you had an eye, but Will's eye is open and taking all the precautions to make returning to the office for a visit safe. Let's talk about something else that's very common too, Chris, is dry eyes, maybe blepharitis. They're common disorders for patients. Yeah, well, dry eyes is where you don't produce enough tears and the eyes dry out. Blepharitis is a condition where the eyelids are inflamed and the eyelids have little oil glands that secrete oils that coat the tears that keep the tears nice and healthy. So if your eyes are feeling dry and irritated, it may be because you're not making enough tears or maybe because your eyelids are not producing enough oils and blepharitis. Um, You need to see your doctor to figure out kind of what's going on, but oftentimes it's helped by artificial tears. gels or ointments. Um, there are some prescription medications such as Restasis or Sequa or Zydra that increase your own body's tear function. And if it's blepharitis, hot compresses are very helpful. Little lit scrubs to clean off um, debris on the eyelashes can be helpful. And sometimes some antibiotic ointment at bedtime can help lubricate the eye overnight and fight little inflammation or microinfections on the lids. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know, especially you know this so well, that our vision is such a gift and it's a magical organ, the eye, and it has so many different parts. That's why you specialize just in cornea disease. I know you see other um, eye, take care of eye, other eye conditions as well, but transplants, I, I, I'm sure most people have heard that you can have a cornea transplant, but what are some of the reasons why a patient might need a cornea transplant? Well, some reasons would include corneal scars, for example, from an infection that healed up and left a scar, Um, corneal trauma, uh, where they got a cut in the cornea that left a scar. Um, Some people are born with conditions that either cause corneal um, opacities, like corneal dystrophies, like granular dystrophy or lattice dystrophy, or Reese Buckler's dystrophy. Um, a lot of patients have a condition called Fuchs dystrophy. That comes on in people's 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and causes corneal swelling. And part of the cornea, the back layer, can be transplanted in those patients um, to, re- to replace the cells that aren't functioning um, and, and it clears the cornea. Um, sometimes p- patients are born, babies are born with cloudy corneas and we can do transplants on babies. Um, I probably do more of the transplants on babies than most people at Wills, and they can be very successful, but treating babies uh, with corneal problems um, is difficult, and the transplants don't always do all that well. Oh, and I know there's one uh, specific condition in particular called the bulging uh, cornea or keratoconus, where the cornea starts to 
look like a cone. It becomes pointed. And you said that can be uh, congenital or inherited, or it can be from rubbing your eyes too much. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because sometimes that doesn't need transplant anymore. That's a real miracle. Yes. So keratoconus is a condition that usually comes on around age 10, 15, 20, 25. And it's often related to people who rub their eyes a lot, but it can run in families. It causes the cornea to bulge out and distort the vision. It used to be mm. that people got glasses and contacts, and when it got bad enough, they had to have a transplant. Um, over the past 5, 10, 15 years, a new procedure was developed called corneal collagen cross-linking, where you can um, put riboflavin drops in the eye, shine an ultraviolet light on the eye, and it strengthens the cornea in patients with keratoconus to prevent it from getting worse so they don't need stronger and stronger contacts, and ideally will never need a cornea transplant. Sure. And, and I guess, as we said, it's a real miracle that cornea transplants even exist. But if a person does have a transplant, does that mean a lifetime of steroids and immunosuppression, or how is that handled? Um, yeah, well, transplants have a low risk of rejection, but there is a risk of rejection forever, even 20 or 30 years after a transplant. Depending on the type of transplant and the reason that it's done, transplants can last, you know, five years or up to 30 or even 40 years. Um, they, they don't last forever. They tend to poop out. And, of course, if there's rejection or another problem, that can limit the life of a transplant. Mm. Usually pa patients are on um, steroid eye drops. They don't need steroid pills, but steroid eye drops as anti-rejection medication for many years. But sometimes we get people off steroids if they're doing well for many years. Good to know. So topical is a whole lot safer than taking pills that affect your whole system. Chris, let's take right. a little break. And when we come back, we'll hear how you can protect your eyes from the sun. Great. Thank you. Your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return. But first, a medical message from one of our partners. <laughs> We're so grateful to be hearing from Dr. Chris Rapawana from Will's Eye. Chris, it's summertime, but all year long, we should be wearing sunglasses to protect our eyes from so many conditions like cataracts. I don't know if the people are aware that cataracts are a result of sun exposure, whether it's reflecting off the snow in the wintertime or this, the uh, water in the summertime. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the sun can really do a lot of damage to lots of parts of our body. We, we, most of us know about the skin damage that can be done and increases the chance of skin melanoma, but sun can also damage things in the eye. Um, sun increases the risk of cataracts. Um, cataracts, they come on for lots of different reasons, age, getting older, being one, other things like oral steroids or diabetes, but certainly sunlight is one of the things. Other problems that... Uh, sunlight, ultraviolet light can cause around the eye are skin cancers on the eyelid skin or even skin mm. cancers on the eyeball. Like on the surface yeah. of the eye, the conjunctiva can get skin cancers similar to what's on the lids, but on the eyeball. Um, macular degeneration tend to be in older patients, but sun exposure can increase the chance of macular degeneration. Things like smoking increases those chances too. Um, but, uh, but, we can certainly decrease the risk of numerous eye problems by wearing sunglasses. Not only when you're going to be out at the beach for a whole day, but if you're just going out for a walk in the sun, sunglasses are a great idea. Yes. And uh, tell us about melanoma. Is the melanoma, um, I know when we think about the eye, the lens and the 
the cornea are letting the light in and the retina is like the film where the picture is stored. Does melanoma affect the retina or it's an area near the retina called the choroid? Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the most common types of melanoma in the eye are choroidal melanomas, which is a layer mm-hmm. behind the retina. Um, mm-hmm. And that can come on um, without people knowing it, you know, and, until exactly. it gets big sometimes. So that's why, you know, eye exams every few years where you get your eye dilated and the doctor looks in the back of their eye to make sure that everything is healthy. Um, right. Sun exposure may increase the chance of melanoma somewhat. Um, it's, it's much more directly related to skin melanoma rather than uveal melanoma. See, so melanoma from the sun is skin, melanoma from the eye might be congenital? Um, we don't know. We actually don't know mm-hmm. why people get mm-hmm. melanoma. I mean, there mm-hmm. are small, uh, um, there are very few patients who do, do have kind of syndromes, congenital syndromes that can increase their chance of melanoma, but we don't really know why people get melanoma. There are some genetic defects that people are finding now that we're doing more and more genetic analysis, um, but uh, we don't really know. We have about a minute left, Chris. You mentioned something interesting the other day, a pterygium. It's spelled P-T-E-R-Y-G-I-U-M. It's a little scar that you can get on the cornea. Am I right about that from sun exposure? That's correct. So that is directly related to sun exposure. It starts off on the conjunctiva as kind of a growth. It's not really a cancer or a tumor, but it's definitely an abnormal growth of scar tissue on the conjunctiva, and then it grows onto the cornea. And if it grows on a little bit, it's a little irritating and looks funny, but if it grows a lot, it can really distort and affect the vision. And I do surgery to remove these pterygia literally every week. So it sounds like if people want to make a good investment, get sunglasses with protection, not just fancy ones that look good with your outfit, but they really protect the most precious gift yeah. you have, your UVA, vision. UVA and UVB protection, right, which most sunglasses will have. You don't have to get something super fancy to, to get that. Thank you for mentioning that. I almost forgot that. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Happy 4th of July weekend. I hope you get some rest. You help so many people. And Will's Eye, what a fantastic uh, source of miracle work that you all do there. And we're so fortunate to have you in Philadelphia. Take care, Chris. Thanks thank again. You. Thank you very much, Ryan. You take care. Now, your real champions. now it's time for your real champion this week's segment is called semper fi it's fourth of july weekend the holiday we commemorate with fireworks parades waving the flag but for one man every day is the fourth of july jack johnson grew up in philadelphia was a college student at drexel university in the 1960s jack wanted to blend service to his country with the ability to finish college the marines offered the perfect opportunity He remembers those days fondly, still meets with fellow Marines each year to raise a toast and enjoy lunch on November 10, the Marine Corps birthday. Serving his country is something he learned from his family. His uncle served in World War II and was one of the founders of the USO Center at the Philadelphia Airport when it included a simple card table that offered a cup of coffee and a boost in morale to men and women in uniform. For many years, Jack served as a member of the Scarlet and Gold Committee for the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation in Philadelphia. He was recognized for his loyalty with the Semper Fidelis Award. But before the award ceremony in Philadelphia, his job relocated him to Chicago. But in Jack's words, the Marines never forget. They tracked him down and gave him the award in Chicago. 
The year, 1996, and Marine Corps Sergeant Jack Johnson remembers standing on stage in front of a massive flag. It was his good fortune that one of those in attendance was Joe Rosenthal, the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who took the iconic picture of the Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima at Mount Suribachi. Photographer Joe Rosenthal gave Jack a signed copy of a photograph using the original negative from 1945, which Jack still treasures as an invaluable keepsake. As Jack said, the Marines never forget, but Jack never forgets the Marines. He served for many years with the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, the national organization that made a promise to ensure that every child of a severely injured Marine or Navy corpsman has the opportunity to pursue the American dream that their parents served and sacrificed to defend. Jack and his wife Bobby were blessed with six daughters. Their home in Ocean City, New Jersey is a gathering place for their children and grandchildren. In fact, when I spoke to Jack, it was just over a day since the family welcomed the 15th grandchild. You'll know you've reached the Johnsons because right in front is the largest flagpole on the island, 40 feet tall with a six by 10 foot flag. Out of true love for his country, Jack has a daily ceremony to raise the flag with all in attendance. Every family member salutes the flag and recites the Pledge of Allegiance as the Star Spangled Banner is brought to full glory, waving under the blue sky. One of his grandsons often brings a saxophone to play the national anthem. And each night at sunset, the family comes together to lower the flag and close it properly in 13 folds. Even the four-year-old is learning. The Johnsons also have marked the entrance to the beach with 50 small flags. You walk through a tunnel of stars and stripes as you head for the sand. Another family tradition, Ocean City Bike Parade on July 4. One year, their prize-winning theme was Pop's flag-raising team. Last year, the parade was dedicated in memory of Jack's dear wife, Bobby. She passed away the year before on the eve of July 4. Jack shares that the U.S. flag is the fourth oldest national flag in the world. And when I asked what it means to him, he said, it honors the guys who didn't come back. It represents our freedom and democracy and the opportunity for everyone's voice to be heard. Spoken like the champion he is. As your real champion this week, we salute Marine Corps Sergeant Jack Johnson. Semper Fi. A special thank you to our exclusive partner, Independence Blue Cross, and thank you for listening each week. And if you miss a show, our podcasts are on yourradiodoctor.com, along with champion stories. Next week, learn about the power of physical therapy after trauma, stroke, and now with patients after COVID. Now tune in to two beautiful voices of Frank Sinatra and Sid Mark. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.